The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution deals with the rights of citizens as it pertains to criminal or civil proceedings. Among the rights that are enumerated in this amendment are the right to a grand jury, protection from multiple prosecutions or punishments, protection from self-incrimination, and the right to due process. The framers of the Constitution recognize, based on long legal precedent, both good and bad, that these basic rights were essential to the rule of law in a free and democratic society. It's the second of these rights, which has become known as double, double jeopardy, that draws our attention this morning. The amendment states, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be put twice in jeopardy of life or limb. Essentially, this amendment prohibits the government from prosecuting a person more than once for the same crime or imposing more than one punishment for the same offense. This legal protection has a long history in Western civilization, dating back as far as ancient Greece and ancient Rome. The reasoning behind the statute is threefold. It establishes the finality of legal verdicts, In other words, the prosecution cannot simply retry a case because they didn't like the outcome. It it limits prosecutorial power. In other words, even the state must abide by the rule of law. And it protects individuals from financial and emotional toll of repeated prosecutions. In other words, the statute against double jeopardy has been recognized as a feature of natural law for as long as there has been the rule of law. Now, the Apostle Paul informed us back in Romans 2, 14 and 15, that the Gentiles who do not have the law written in Scripture, yet still have the law inscribed upon their conscience. In other words, God has hardwired, in a sense, this, this notion of justice into the hearts and minds of men at creation. It is part of our being created in the image of God. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us to find God operating by the very same rule. To prosecute the same person twice for the same crime is universally considered unjust because it violates God's holy character, a character which he has inscribed upon the image of God in man. God, who is the final arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust, does not do that, and therefore neither should human courts. Now, it's this principle of the injustice of so-called double jeopardy that forms the basis of the third unshakable pillar of eternal security that we find in Romans 8, 31 to 39. In this passage, Paul defiantly raises five unanswerable rhetorical questions designed to demonstrate that those who are justified will never be condemned, that those who are saved can never be lost. Believers who are redeemed by the saving work of Christ are eternally secure in Christ. To better understand Paul's thinking, 
We've been taking these five rhetorical questions and turning them around into five unshakable declarations or promises of eternal security. Now, last week, we unpacked the first two, which are found in verses 31 and 32. The first unshakable pillar of eternal security is founded upon God's covenantal disposition toward us. Our eternal security is founded first upon God's covenantal disposition toward us. In verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? We turn that question into a declaration, into a promise, and we get this. Since God is for us, none can stand against us. That God is for us is covenant language. You remember we reached back into Joshua chapter 5 and we explored the nature of God's covenant with Israel and we asked the question as to why does the angel of the Lord, why does Christ there in Joshua chapter 5 say he is not for Israel? but rather is for the Lord. It was because of the nature of that conditional covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, a covenant that they had egregiously and continuously violated. But the nature of the new covenant is different. God's covenant with the church is unconditional. It is secured and sealed by the blood and the righteousness of Christ. God is for us. He is on our side. He has bound himself to us by an unconditional covenant sealed and secured by the redemptive work of Christ. Therefore, all of his omnipotent power is directed toward completing our salvation. And no weapon formed against us, neither tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, verse 35, shall stand. Second, our eternal security is founded upon God's sufficient provision of all things necessary for our perseverance in faith unto salvation. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Turning that question into a promise, we get this statement. Since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will surely give us all things necessary to ensure that we receive the reward for which Christ died. Now, this is an argument from from the greater to the lesser. Since God has already done the greater thing, namely deliver his own beloved son over to suffering and death in order to purchase redemption for the church, he can surely be trusted to do the lesser thing, namely keep his church through every trial and tribulation in order to see that redemption complete. So we come this morning to the third pillar of our eternal security, which is God's irrevocable justification. Simply put, it is impossible that one of God's elect should be charged with sin in the court of God's justice because Christ has already faced those charges. He has already been convicted of those crimes 
and he has already suffered the due punishment for those sins in our place. Therefore, it would be unjust for God to condemn his elect for those sins for which he already condemned Christ. I think that's what Paul means in verse 33 when he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to, or who is to condemn Christ Jesus? Is he who died? All right, we turn those two questions into a promise, and here's what we get. Since God has justified his elect, no charge shall ever be brought against them. And since Christ Jesus has died, they can never be condemned. Now, I'm treating those two questions from verse 33 and the first half of verse 34 together because I think they're connected thematically by Paul's use of legal language. Bring a charge, justify, condemn. Those are all legal terms that belong to the courtroom. And that's the scene that Paul has us imagining in verses 33 and 34. The divine courtroom on the last day. The Bible is abundantly clear that there will come a day when we will all stand before the throne of God's judgment. Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, Paul says. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, Romans 14.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Revelation 20 and verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the scene that Paul has in mind when he comes to verses 33 and 34. When he utilizes these three legal terms, he's thinking of the final judgment. All people, dead and living will be raised and brought before the bar of God's righteous judgment to answer for their sins. So the question is, on what basis then can we, sinners, have any confidence that we will not be condemned on that day? Just a few moments ago we sang, And Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. He's descending in judgment. Even so, it is well with my soul. How do we get there? Paul has an answer. On what basis can we have assurance that we will not be cast away? 
It is likely, particularly if you were converted at an early age, that the sins, as you look back upon your life, the sins of which you are most ashamed are sins that you committed after becoming a Christian. How then can you be sure that you have not violated the covenant with God as Israel did and that you will not be expelled from the land as Israel was? Paul's answer is twofold. Number one, because you were justified by God. And number two, because Christ Jesus has died. In other words, since God has justified his elect, no charge shall ever be brought against them. Verse 33. And since Christ Jesus has died, they can never be condemned. Verse 34. Now, even though Paul wrote 1,700 years before the Bill of Rights was drafted, it seems to me that the legal principle undergirding this argument is the same. Paul's thinking in terms of the prohibition against double jeopardy. It is unjust to try a man twice for the same crime, and it is unjust to impose impose multiple punishments for the same offense. In other words, there is no double jeopardy, either in a United States court of law or before the divine tribunal. In verses 33 and 34, Paul takes this principle of natural law and he applies it to the church. Just as a man who has been acquitted that is declared not guilty of an offense, need not fear that he will later be tried for the same offense, but he can walk in confidence that that verdict rendered is final, even so the believer who has been justified, that is declared not guilty by God, need not fear that he will later at the final judgment be condemned for his sin. Rather, that believer can walk in confidence that God's verdict is final. I think this is what Paul means by who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. His verdict is final. Likewise, just as a man who has been found guilty of a crime and sentenced to punishment, who has served his time and paid his debt to society, the evidence of which is that he's being released from prison, need not fear that he will be arrested and imprisoned again for the same crime. Even so, the believer for whom Christ stood as substitute in the judgment of God at the cross, whose sins Christ bore, whose punishment Christ absorbed, whose debt to God's righteousness Christ paid, the evidence of which was Christ's own resurrection from the dead, need not worry that at the final judgment a further punishment will be required of him. I think that's what Paul means when he follows that up by, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. In verses 33 and 34, Paul is challenging us to remember what took place in our justification. And he's inviting us to apply this natural law to our situation. He wants us to think through it like this. Did a trial take place during which your sins were judged? Yes, At the cross of Christ, God entered into judgment upon my sins. Which sins? All of them? Even those committed after your conversion? Yes. 
Christ bore in his body all my sins, past, present, and future. Was the verdict, what was the verdict of that trial? Christ was found guilty. And what was the sentence? Death and hell. And was that sentence carried out? Yes, to the fool. God spared not his own son, but delivered him over to face the full force of divine wrath at the cross. And was God's wrath satisfied? Was the debt to divine justice paid in full? How do you know God raised his son from the dead? Therefore, does any sin remain unpunished? No. All my sin has been satisfactorily judged. Does any debt remain outstanding? No, my debt was paid in its entirety. Is it possible then that a charge may be raised against you at the final judgment or that a sentence of condemnation may be passed upon you on that day? No, for it would be unjust of God to try me for my sins already judged or to require of me punishment for my sins already punished. Doesn't this provide us with an astounding confidence as we look towards that last day? As we face the accusations of Satan or of others of of our own conscience. This is why we sing the kind of songs we sang this morning. By the way, is there any doubt remaining in your mind that Christ is present with us today? It was like entering into just a, a glimpse of glory. Let me, let me run through some of the songs in our repertoire, and you'll see why we sing them week after week. We're going to sing this one in just a moment. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When my accuser makes the claim that I should die for my offense, I point him to that rugged frame where, where I found life at Christ's expense. See, from his hands, his feet, his side, that fountain flowing deep and wide. Oh, hear him shout the victory. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, past, present, and future, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The irrevocable justification of God, secured by the sufficient atonement of Christ, assures me That my sins will never again be laid to my charge before the judgment seat of God. And I will never hear that condemning sentence of guilty thunder forth from his throne. 
God has declared me justified now and forevermore. Why? Because Christ has died once and for all. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. But that's not all. Paul just keeps right on going. There's a fourth pillar of eternal security, and that is Christ's ceaseless intercession for his saints. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. More than that, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, once again, we turn this question into a promise and we get something marvelous. Since Christ Jesus died, was raised, ascended to the right hand of God, and ceaselessly intercedes for his saints, they can never be condemned. So we focused upon the role of Christ's death in the justification of God's elect. That's verse 33. Paul now moves beyond that to the present ministry which Christ performs at the right hand of the Father, namely the ministry of intercession. Paul lists four phases of Christ's redemptive ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. And he he lists them in ascending order so that the last, his intercession right now before the throne of our God forms a kind of climax to all of his saving work. And yet it's one that we so often neglect to remember. You at your weakest, worst point have an advocate before the Father who is pleading your case before the throne of God's judgment. Right now. In other words, the focus in verse 34 is now not upon Christ's death or his resurrection or his ascension to the right hand of God, but upon what Christ does at God's right hand. He intercedes for us. The intercessory ministry of Christ is the fourth grounds of assurance that Paul offers us in this passage. Now, the author of Hebrews takes this idea of Christ's intercession and he connects it with Jesus' role as the high priest of the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 7. He contrasts the high priesthood of Jesus, who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, with the high priesthood in Israel, who were priests in the order of Aaron. And the main point that he's making in Hebrews 7 is that the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of the old covenant, was deficient because the priests themselves were sinful men who kept dying and needing to be replaced. Jesus, on the other hand, he says, is risen from the dead to die no more, and therefore he carries on this priesthood endlessly. The author brings his argument to this soaring conclusion in verse 23 of Hebrews 7. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that, he should, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath 
which came later than the law, he's talking about the new covenant, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Man, that's good. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives, he ever serves to make priestly intercession for them. He doesn't offer up the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away sin, but he offered up his own self upon the altar of the cross. He sprinkled the mercy seat with his own blood. He then rose again, ascended above the heavens, took his place as the high priest of the new covenant, and forever makes intercessory prayer before the Father on behalf of his people. That is beautiful imagery, isn't it? It's just not what Paul's talking about. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind in this passage. When Paul writes that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God and is interceding for us, I don't think Paul's thinking temple. I think he's still thinking courtroom. In other words, I don't think he's thinking of Jesus as the high priest offering intercessory prayers for his people as wonderful and true and vitally connected to our assurance as that is. Rather, I think Paul has in mind Jesus as the sinner's advocate, successfully defending his client against the prosecution's charges. Now, both images are true, and they're connected by this idea of propitiation, the death of Christ securing the verdict of not guilty. But the abundance of legal imagery in this passage, bring a charge, justify, condemn, leads me to interpret intercede as advocate. So I think a more relevant text to, to bring alongside Romans 8.34 would be what we find in 1 John chapter 2. I think this is what we find Paul talking about. John says in 1 John chapter 2, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. In this passage, John's thinking right along the same lines as Paul. He's answering the question, how can we know that we will, won't be condemned for our sins? And his answer is because we have an advocate before the Father that is at his right hand. Jesus Christ the righteous who died to make propitiation for our sins. We have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. Always present before God the judge. Always ready to give an answer. Always ready to make a defense should any accuser either the accuser of the brethren who is Satan or the accuser that resides within our own conscience, should any accuser come forth to lay a charge against one of God's elect, should that occur, we will see Christ immediately arise and say, objection. That charge is inadmissible, for that sin has already been judged, and that debt has already been paid for my client through my substitutionary death on the cross. 
It's because Christ died for our sins, securing for us God's irrevocable verdict of justification. More than that, it's because Christ was raised and ascended to the right hand of God so that he may object to every accusation against one of his elect, that not one of them will ever be condemned before God. So you can sleep well tonight. No matter what you've done today, You can sleep well tonight knowing that you have an advocate before the Father who never sleeps, who never loses a case, and who has secured your justification with his own blood. Finally, Paul lists the fifth pillar of our eternal security, which is Christ's indestructible affection for his redeemed. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's turn this last question into a declaration, a promise. We get this. Since the love of Christ supremely demonstrated in the cross of Christ has infallibly secured God's redeeming love toward us, no trial or tribulation or enemy of any kind will succeed in separating us from that love, but must serve the cause of love in bringing us to glory. Now that's a mouthful, but it's all here in verses 35 to 39. 35 to 37 contain the main point of this last declaration. 38 and 39 are kind of like a climactic restatement. So let's look first at 35 to 37 and what they have to tell us about the indestructible affection of Christ. I want to make two primary notes about this indestructible love. First, I want you to see that it is grounded in the death of Christ on the cross. Look closely at verse 37. There's a point to be made here. Paul states that we are more than conquerors through him who loved, not loves, loved us. That loved is an aorist tense verb, which denotes a completed action, which is why it's translated in the past tense in English. Now, you have to ask yourself a question. Why would Paul speak of Christ's love as a past event rather than a present reality? I think it's because he's thinking specifically of the love of Christ demonstrated for us in his death for sinners. He wants us to link Christ's present indestructible love with that supreme act of love which occurred at the cross. Second note to be made. What has the love of Christ demonstrated in the death of Christ, death of the cross done? It has made us more than conquerors, literally super victors. In all these things, what things? 
in all those things which are mentioned in verses 35 and 36. That's the antecedent. In other words, the indestructible love of Christ, demonstrated supremely at the cross of Christ, has made us super victors in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and slaughter. Notice Paul does not say we are more than conquerors in spite of all these things. Rather, we are more than conquerors in all these things. Do you understand what he's saying? All those things which we are tempted to think must surely be evidence that Christ does not love us, that he does not care for us, are in reality those things in which Christ makes us super victorious. It is not that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, or slaughter just happens coincidentally because we live in a fallen world, but Christ's love helps us to overcome those. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying it is in these things that, that are themselves the instrument of Christ's love which is determined to make us glorious. Christ's love is determined to use these things to make us glorious, to make us conquerors, more than conquerors. The things that you are tempted to think are signs that God does not love you, that he does not care for you, that he has forgotten you, are the very things which he has ordained for you because... He loves you so that he can make you glorious and everlastingly happy. Now, we don't need to dwell long on this truth because it's been the theme of the whole second half of Romans 8, ever since verse 17, right? We will be glorified with Christ only if we suffer with Christ. What I want to emphasize here is that you cannot look to your external circumstances as evidence of your relationship with God. Unbelievers suffer tribulation, like the Rohingya Muslims of Myanmar, and so do the saints. Unbelievers suffer persecution, like the Tibetan Buddhists at the hands of communist China, so do the saints. The saints die of famine and deprivation in places like the Sudan and Somalia, right alongside unbelievers. The saints get caught in the middle of violent civil war in places like Rwanda and in the Congo, just the same as unbelievers. Paul suffered shipwreck in the same vessel as a crew of Greco-Roman pagans. You see the point? You have no promise from God that because he loves you, you will not suffer all these things. And to prove this, Paul quotes from Psalm 44:22, in which the psalmist laments the fact that they are being slaughtered just like sheep all the day long, not because they were ungodly, but precisely because they were godly. That's the context of Psalm 44. 
In other words, you have no promise from God that you will not suffer the very same things that unbelievers suffer. Christians get cancer at the exact same rate as non-Christians. Christians lose children to SIDS at the exact same rate as non-Christians. Christians die in car wrecks at the very same rate as do non-Christians. Christians get the flu just like non-Christians do. The love of Christ does not insulate you from suffering. What it does is cause all of your sufferings to work for your glory by producing within you endurance, which then produces proven character, which then produces hope. Romans 5, 3 to 5. So don't look at your adverse circumstances, your present sufferings, and deduce that Christ has withdrawn his affection from you. It is impossible that he should do so, just as impossible as Christ returning to the cross and undying the atoning death he offered there. That's why it's important to root Christ's love for you, just like Paul does, in the death of the cross. It can't be undone. Christ can't stop loving you. Rather, you should look upon your present sufferings as the means by which he is sanctifying you and preparing you for everlasting glory and unending joy. Paul then concludes this soaring chapter with a set of four contrasts which are designed to emphasize this point, that our salvation, rooted in God's redemptive love for us, won through Christ's atoning death on the cross, is eternally secure. And the point of these four contrasts is that every one of them is all-inclusive. There's nothing between them. Watch. Neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing between death and life. Neither angels nor rulers. And I think he's talking about holy and unholy angelic powers can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there's no other spiritual being in a third category. Neither things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing else than what now presently is and what will be. Neither height nor depth, in other words, heaven or hell, or perhaps heaven and earth, encompassing all spatial limits, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing between height and depth, however those terms are to be understood. Now, it's unclear where powers fit into these four contrasts. I like what one commentator said. He, he simply put, Paul has not arranged his sequence as carefully as some of his critics would have wanted him to. <laughs> Why the word occurs here on its own is impossible for us to know. It, it, powers probably denotes spiritual beings. That's what it tends to mean throughout the New Testament. Paul then concludes with, with a catch-all summary, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His point here is crystal clear. There is no created thing, and everything that is not God is a created thing. In other words, nothing can separate us from God's love secured for us by Christ's death. We are eternally secure in the love of Jesus. There you have it. Five reasons why those who are saved can never be lost, but are eternally secure in the redemption purchased by Christ. Let me run through them briefly. Number one, since God is for us, that is in covenant with us, none can stand against us. 
Verse 31. Number two, since God did not spare his own son, but gave him over to suffering and death for the redemption of his people, he will surely provide all things necessary to bring that redemption to completion. Verse 32. Number three, since God has justified his elect, no charge shall ever be brought against them. And since Christ Jesus has died, they can never be condemned. Verses 33 and 34a. Number four, Since Christ Jesus died, was raised, ascended to the right hand of God, and ceaselessly intercedes for his saints, they can never be condemned. Verse 34. And number five. Since the love of Christ, supremely demonstrated in the cross of Christ, has infallibly secured God's redeeming love toward us, no trial or tribulation or enemy of any kind will succeed in separating us from that love, but must serve the cause of love in bringing us to glory. Verses 35. To 39. But there is one more point that I need to make. The biblical doctrine of eternal security is not the same thing as the traditional Baptist mantra of once saved, always saved. I hate that phrase. And I hate it because while it is true so far as it goes, it has been used in dangerously misleading ways. Allowing for a person who has at one time in their life made a profession of faith to believe himself or herself saved regardless of the evidence or fruit of their lives. I would much prefer, if we're going to use a trite phrase like that, once saved, always saved, if saved. At least that would suggest that there is some evidence of genuine conversion in your life or else the promises of eternal security don't apply to you. You see, the doctrine of eternal security is only one half of the full biblical picture. It is true, gloriously true, that all who are genuinely converted, regenerated, justified, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit can never be lost. Yes and amen. But it is also true that a tree is known by its fruits and that all who are genuinely converted will persevere in faith and obedience to Christ no matter what and will never finally fall away though trials and temptations and tribulations arise. Now this is largely a topic for another time, but I thought it would be wise to end our study of eternal security by providing just a word of balance we have to formulate this doctrine of eternal security in such a way as to include both John 10, 27 through 28, right? the words of Christ, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen? Amen. And the words of Christ in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Amen? Good. We have to frame this doctrine in such a way as to include both Paul's words in Romans 8.30, that all those whom he has predestined, he has called, and those whom he's called, he's justified, and those whom he's justified, he has glorified. Amen? And all of those... Warning passages of Hebrews that we don't 
like to talk about in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, for instance. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of the sin. For the, by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed. We hold our original confidence firm to the end. Amen. So I began last week's sermon by giving you two tests to help you examine whether these glorious promises apply to you. Test number one, do I love God? These come from Romans eight twenty-eight. by the way. Has my natural hostility toward God's rule and reign over my life been turned into the glad embrace of his rule and reign over my life, exercised through his word? Has there been a change of heart towards my relationship to God and his word? Secondly, am I called of God? Well, since the call of God inevitably and infallibly leads to faith, Romans 8.30, the question is, do I trust in Christ as my atoning sacrifice and my justifying righteousness such that my only hope of right standing before God is in Jesus alone? To these two tests now, I think we need to add a third. Do I love God? Am I called of God? And am I persevering in faith? Am I persevering in my love for God and faith in Christ through every trial and tribulation and temptation. Not falling away like so many, but pressing on to the finish line to receive the reward for which Christ died. Because both statements are equally gloriously true. Number one, All those in Christ are eternally secure in Christ and can never be lost. Amen? Number two, it is only those who persevere to the end who will be saved. Amen? So persevere in faith and obedience to the very end, knowing that as you do, you can never be lost. My Father... I pray that you will give this church, these people, a strong and unshakable confidence. Knowing that as long as they hold tight to you, not perfectly, but truly, grasping on to your word as their only rule, grasping onto your son as their only hope, grasping onto the cross as the only means of justification, coming to you when they fall, confessing their sins to you, receiving from you the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of pardon. It is as long as they persevere in faith that they have the confidence that they'll never be cast away for their sins. They'll never be condemned. No trial or tribulation or danger or famine or nakedness or distress or peril or sword or even slaughter will separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus.